the wider world, and I think animal protection officers and other people who work in kind of the challenges that arise in the human-animal interface will tell you that they don't have a lot of people that they can talk about their day with that wants to hear about their day. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. The voice you just heard belongs to Saskatoon's Erin Wasson, and she's the feature interview in episode 10 of YXE Underground. Mental health is an issue we as a society are becoming more comfortable talking about, which is great, but there is a profession that I think doesn't receive the attention it deserves when it comes to mental health challenges, and that would be veterinarians. Studies have shown veterinarians are at a higher risk of suicide and that their work can lead to mental health fatigue. That's where Erin Wasson comes into the picture. Erin is a social worker at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine on the University of Saskatchewan campus. Erin provides counseling for WCVM students, faculty and staff, as well as clients who use the small and large animal clinics at the college. She is a caring and insightful person who loves her two cats and horse, and I think you're really going to connect with Erin's story. I first met Erin in 2016 when I was hosting the weekend show on CBC Radio here in Saskatchewan. It was a big deal, and rightly so, that the WCVM had hired a social worker to help with mental health challenges. It was a first of its kind in Canada, and I believe still is. The interview I did with Erin was around five to six minutes, but she was one of those people who right away you realized that you could spend an hour talking to. We stayed in touch throughout the years, and when I started the podcast last year, she was one of the people I really wanted to interview. But before we dive into the podcast, I should explain where I am. So right now, I am at the Arlington Animal Hospital here in Saskatoon. And the reason why I'm here is this is where we take our dog, Fred, for, uh, for his checkups and his, uh, uh, his procedures, like getting his teeth cleaned or if he has something else uh, wrong with him. This is, <laughs> this is where we go. So um, the, the, the staff here are amazing. They take such good care of Fred. And uh, I thought it would be kind of neat to, uh, to do the voicing here in the vet clinic. Uh, there were two dogs that were just here in the lobby, and uh, now they're going in uh, for their checkups. So if you hear some dogs in the background, that's why, because I'm at the vet clinic. And uh, yes, Thank you for having me here, Arlington Animal Hospital. I was thinking of bringing Fred here too, but I thought that might be a, uh, too stressful for him, to say the least. Okay, so as I was saying, I, I really do admire the work that veterinarians do, but it is a stressful job. To learn more about the mental challenges that come with being a veterinarian, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Bader. She is a WCVM graduate. She's a veterinarian at the Central Animal Hospital in Saskatoon and a professor at the University of Saskatchewan. You are going to hear her voice throughout this episode because she articulates so well the mental health challenges veterinarians face. When I asked about those specific challenges, Sarah talked a lot about not being able to directly communicate with her patients, which makes a lot of sense because Fred is not going to tell you what's wrong with him. And then she talked about something I know my wife and I have discussed when it comes to Fred's care, and that would be money. Money is a big thing. You come to the vet and your dog has a broken leg and we have to tell you that it's going to be $2,000 to fix your dog's broken leg because it's not public health care. It's privatized health care, right? Um, 
And lots of people say, I don't have $2,000 to, to fix my dog's broken leg. And you say, well, that's really unfortunate. Um, so one of the options is that we sort of try to medically manage it the best we can. We put a splint or a cast on it and tell them, I mean, we this may not heal perfectly, but it's worth a try and it costs less money, right? Um, and some people say they, they'll try that. Other people will elect to put their dogs down because that's they don't want them to be painful and um, and hurting and that kind of stuff. And so... You say, well, that's too bad that because of money, they had to let their pet go. And that's sort of a sad reality lots of the time that, I mean, we end up saving most of the patients and lots of the patients and people are sort of invested in their animals and they often will come up with the money. And it's, it's hard to explain to them that we're not trying to steal money from them and that we're not overcharging them, but that's just actually what it costs. It costs money to, to rent the buildings and to pay the staff that work there and all the medical supplies and the anesthetic time and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's hard to sometimes justify that to them, that the money really gets in the way and it sometimes prevents you from being a veterinarian. You more have to act like an accountant and try to talk to them about finances and that sort of thing. You will hear more from Dr. Sarah Bader in a bit. But right now, let's get to Erin. We met in her office at the WCVM, and the conversation began by looking at the mental health challenges present in the veterinary world. One of the things that has come out in the last number of years is the real risk to mental injury to veterinarians and allied professions. So I'm thinking like technicians and others working in the profession. Um, because of the nature of the work. And so there's a lot of uh, different factors that come in there, but some of it has to do with trauma exposure. Some of it has to do with, um, you know, feeling like you're working in isolation, uh, lack of work-life balance, all that kind of stuff. At any rate, there's, there's a good amount of literature that talks about the nature of the work, the challenges of the work, and then the dangers of the, that work. And some of that literature also speaks to the risk of suicide ideation and dying by suicide. And so for those reasons, we want to make sure that people are really well supported. And it's sometimes challenging to go and access a support service if you, A, are already somebody who struggles with work-life balance, and so making those appointments isn't something that's going to be congruent for you. B, you don't believe that the person you're talking to really understands the struggle you're dealing with in the day-to-day with your work and really understands the nature of your work. And then I think C would be can understand the work not only from the perspective of hearing you talk about it but has their own experiences with it and who you believe has credibility for that reason and so a lot of what I've sort of anecdotally discovered in my work is that in order to get people to access services first we need them to start talking about what they might need and what they're struggling with And we have really, really good services on campus. So we've got an employee family assistance plan or an employee assistance plan that is full, full, full. And I mean, it's up on the wall outside. So when we get out there, we'll look at it. But a pile of services on there. It's 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year, right? Anybody can access it. But you still have to be willing to pick up the phone. And... I think sometimes veterinarians with how discerning they are in their work, they're also discerning in the type of practitioner they want to see. 
And so being able to have a conversation with somebody that they trust, who has some credibility with them because I work alongside them, right? And then be able to redirect them to the appropriate services available to them removes barriers. And that's the idea, is it's not to duplicate service, it's to simply break down some barriers. Now it leads to social worky conundrums because that means that I have to be really, really cautious about managing dual relationships. And in my own uh, codes of practice and standards and ethics and all kinds of stuff, there's really strict guidance on that. But it means that for me, uh, having a role like this in an environment like this means that I can't have friendships here. Means that, so I don't have, I have collegial relationships, but some people become friends with their colleagues. That's not an option for me. I don't have my colleagues on Facebook or Instagram, right? I don't have um, my colleagues a part of my personal life. I don't go to, say, the staff Christmas party, right? Because I have to be conscious of, you know, like what if people are getting, you know, having drinks or something and then they let slip, oh, I saw Aaron. You know, I have to hold myself to a higher standard around confidentiality and protecting people's best interest. And so I think that that could be isolating, but I actually find it to be really restful. I don't have to sort of... Um, carry on social relationships that I might not have otherwise chosen, right? Because there's just a boundary in place. Um, and it also brings a lot of safety to the people that I'm seeing. And, and that's really important to me because this is a group of people who have traditionally felt um, unable or unwilling to access services. And so if I can create safety and credibility and remove barriers, and the trade-off is I just don't carry on social relationships in, that, in my place of work, that's okay with me. And it also opens up really great lines of, of communication with people because when you go to explain that and then they come to understand why it is you have those boundaries, everybody feels respected, heard, and understood. And that creates greater depth of connection and trust and rapport in and of itself. So, yeah. So, sorry, I kind of went down a rabbit hole there. No, no, no. But, like, that, it, that's the service provision piece around faculty and staff. Yeah. The, that is so fascinating. And, and I, and I want to get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, but there was a couple of things. I just want to stick with the veterinarians for a second. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in terms of what what they need because of the, the work that they do. Mm-hmm. What is it about a veterinarian's job, their career, that and, – and I in my mind, I'm thinking there's some obvious ones um, yeah. probably. But uh, what what is it that makes their job so so challenging and then like puts them at, at risk to the point where you, you have this position? Because obviously the WCVM – and I, I think it's a good decision – thought, okay, we need someone here to help veterinarians. But what, what is it about – the job, the career that that makes them like, prone to that? Yeah, and puts them at risk. Yeah. So, I mean, I've already talked a little bit about, like, the isolation and, and trauma exposure and things like that. Um, it's funny. I was just having this conversation uh, with one of my colleagues today about um, just death and dying in veterinary medicine. Uh, and we were, we were talking about sort of um, the normative thinking in veterinary medicine 
around death and dying because um, death is a treatment option. Humane euthanasia is a treatment option. And not only is it a treatment option, but it's often a reasonable sort of expectation that that's the route you're going to go when um, the stars don't align where future treatments are available for whatever reason. Um, I really... I'm hesitant to speak to the experiences of other people, right? Because I want to be sensitive to the fact that it's not me, right? I'm still a social worker. And so I'm I'm not a veterinarian. And so I, I think that even in having all of the connection I do with them, I am still limited by the fact that I'm not one to be able to speak fully to their experience. That said, that's like my my caveat or whatever. Um, that said, what I do or what I have come to understand is that the process of becoming a veterinarian is is challenging. You have to work extremely, extraordinarily hard. And then once you become a veterinarian, you become another family doctor. So you are now the family doctor for somebody's animals. And those animals can't speak for themselves. So when you think about the small animal world, so we're talking, you know, um, dogs and cats and ferrets and guinea pigs and all kinds of stuff. When you're talking about that, that world, you know, you're having to attend to the people that come through the door their animal, and the relationship between the two of them. You're not just there. You know, your primary your primary focus is the welfare of the animal because that's ethically what your primary focus is supposed to be. But that doesn't change the fact that if you don't have really good rapport with your clients and you haven't built a lot of trust, that, you know, we know that the literature says, especially the communication literature, that, you know, clients are less than 30% compliant with your recommendations if you don't have a good relationship with them. We also know from um, that literature that, you know, about 80% of complaints are, are a direct result of miscommunication and people not feeling heard and understood and clients not feeling heard and understood uh, in combination with some other factors. And then we also know that about 65% of the time, if you do a really good physical exam and if you have a really good conversation with your client and get a really accurate history of what's been going on, you can get darn close to a diagnosis just from that communication with your client and their physical exam. But all of that has to do with interaction with your client. So those relationships are hugely important, but also hugely challenging. Because often, especially in a, in a hospital like ours, where you've got an emergency service or um, lots of specialty services, right? Because we're mostly not your general practitioners. We have a really well-established um, practice of general practitioners here. But the vast majority of the time when you're coming in here, you're seeing a specialist and you're seeing someone who's board certified and did two internships and then a residency and then goodness knows what else and then wrote exams that, you know, take the absolute stuffing out of them, right? So that's who you're seeing when you come through the door. So this person, this veterinarian is seeing you when you are not in your best self trying to get as much information as possible, trying to do it in a way where, you know, 
they manage the intensity of their own day because you're not their only case, right? There's, it's an emergency service. It's kind of like if you were to walk into the emergency room anywhere else, right? Um, and, and so there's like in the human world is what I'm referring to. So, you know, you've got all of those pieces at play, plus they're probably not your regular vet, right? And so they don't have all that rapport built with you. So they've got to do that with you also. And not not from a disingenuine way, but from a, you know, I need to get to know you. I need to know what's going on with your animal. And also make sure that everybody understands what's going on in layperson terms. And P.S. let's do that in this teensy-weensy finite period of time because I need to move into action if your animal's in real distress. So you have that going on. And that's just your basics, right? Then you add on top of that um, periods of time where somebody might have to do, you know, four or five or six euthanasias in a day. And so... You know, you end up this, and this was when I was referring to my conversation with my colleague, there's this really like normative feeling around death and dying and around um, the nature of ending distress through humane euthanasia. And there's questions in the literature, there's nothing very concrete, but there's questions in the literature that talk about whether or not that's a contributing factor to when somebody becomes ill themselves saying, you know, this is a reasonable time for me to be done, you know? And so, and that, and that's congruent with what I, what I see in my practice where I have to have conversations with people who believe that they're palliative in their mental health and where we're trying to figure out, you know, and challenge some of that thinking around that, particularly in ways when there hasn't been appropriate intervention. And so we don't actually know if you're, where you're at in sort of your um, recovery process around your mental health. One of my big takeaways from this conversation is a new appreciation for the job that veterinarians do and then learning why Aaron's job is so important at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. You are listening to YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson and this episode's guest is social worker Aaron Wasson. If you want to see some pictures of Erin at the WCVM and with her two adorable cats at her house, you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook and on Twitter. One of the hardest things my family and I have ever had to do is putting down our pets. I was in grade nine living in Swift Current when we had to put our beagle, Molly, down. I still remember the day that it happened. Molly and I were in the schoolyard behind our house. Uh, it bordered Fairview Arena and Fairview School in Swift Current. And, uh, and she was just having so much fun chasing gophers, but um, her, her time had come and so we had to put her down that day. 
And then I remember my last year of journalism school when my mom had to take our family beagle, Maddie, in by herself uh, in Winnipeg to have her euthanized. And both times, it just completely gutted our family. Uh, but never did I consider how the, the veterinarians were doing um, when this procedure was happening, how they were feeling in the moment. Euthanasia is something both Aaron and Dr. Sarah Bader deal with in their jobs. When I asked Sarah what those moments are like for her, she admitted that it was one of the hardest parts of her job. She explained the importance of communicating with the family and discussing happy memories of their pet. Afterwards, Sarah goes through a coping ritual that she shared with me. As far as my own mental health, what I do, I usually, for every pet that I euthanize, I, that I let them go, I always, after the appointment, I go to my office and I write them a card and I always mail everybody a card. Um, clients who have been at the clinic for 20 years or something, I'll usually send them flowers or something and just let them know that I am really sorry for their loss and that I'm the person that had to be there, but I'm glad that they um, were sort of that their pet was lucky to have them and that they gave them a good long life. And I, that's, I think, sort of my decompression ritual is that I say that this is, for me, that it was, again, usually the pets are really sick and that it, that was, when you're advocating for the pet's well-being, that that was the best thing to do in that situation. Um, and certainly, yeah, every vet's going to be a little bit different, but you have to develop some sort of coping mechanism where you you can't be overwhelmed um, and, I guess, really too badly internalize this kind of stuff because I, I think it will eat at you and it will sort of degrade your, your own mental health. And I think that it's hard for vets um, to not take their work home with them, but I think that it's important to have some sort of separation that way that if you can figure it out. Euthanizing animals is something Aaron and I discussed as well and the impact it has on veterinarians. It led us to themes of isolation, why people might not want to hear about that part of the job, and why Aaron's job is so important. The other piece of it is, is the wider world doesn't want to hear about that part. The wider world wants to talk about puppies and kitties and gee it must be so nice that you spend your day with all the puppies and kitties and you know that's not the veterinary experience you know and I try to I try to describe that to people um, especially when people in my own field and in, and just you know in my personal life would ask me what I'm up to and I also found myself facing the aversion and so what I would have was rather than people most often people would say to me I don't know how you do that I couldn't do that right which I understand is meant to sort of say you know that they admire what you do or that they respect the role that you're that you're taking on all that kind of stuff um but the the thing is, is it's also, it, it puts you in this place where you look at them, and we were talking about nonverbals either, and you see the, the way that their face sort of crinkles up, and they almost pull away from you and turn their eyes away. And it's like this aversion to the things you must witness every day. And so you don't have... Is that hard on you? On me? I'm okay because I have clinical supervision, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, but you know, when you can't share the parts of your world, when you spend 8 or 10 hours or longer a day, because veterinarians, lots of them are working 15-hour days 
on the regular, some of them, and if they're listening to this, you know who I'm talking about, are sleeping in their clinics overnight to care for your animals, right? Doing this far and away above and beyond stuff that clients wholly appreciate, but is not healthy or sustainable for an individual in their work life, right? So for them and for other people who do not have spaces in their world where they can talk about the challenges of their work, it can be really, really isolating. And then when you add on top of it that there is a bit of a um, thou shalt overcome you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, we're tough, we're veterinarians, this is how we roll kind of thing. Well, while you have all that going on too, you don't necessarily have a culture of collegial support where you can talk about how challenging your day was with your colleagues. Now, I don't want to make sweeping statements about that because I will tell you that there are departments in this place that do an amazing job of supporting one another and recognizing when people's caseloads are out of balance and doing what they need to do to make sure that he, that everybody's got a debrief space. And those same services have provided that to me when we've had challenging cases where, you know, I'm kind of rocked by it because, you know, I'm human, right? Um, but all of that said, you know, the wider world, and I think animal protection officers and other people who work in kind of the challenges that arise in the human-animal interface will tell you that they don't have a lot of people that they can talk about their day with that wants to hear about their day. Because the response when you talk about your day, and I mean confidentiality, of course, right? Like never sharing information that you know, you shouldn't be or that identifies people. But, you know, talking about the broad scrapings of your day, when that brings out aversion in people, you start to sanitize what you share. And I certainly, I don't just sanitize what I share because of the nature of confidentiality and that kind of stuff. Of course, I do it for those reasons. But I sanitize what I share in my world because like with, with my non-clinical supervision and stuff, because I don't want to see the aversion face. And I don't want to hear, oh, I don't know how you do what you do. Because to me, it's kind of like, I do it because I'm good at it. I'm actually okay. I can handle it quite well. It doesn't mean I walk around completely unaffected. And that's the kind of thing that I feel like veterinarians need. And so that's the service that I feel like I provide is normalizing the experience, reducing risk, and then encouraging people to get some external support where they can go and get support for, sure, their work in veterinary medicine or the parts of their lives that have blown up that need attending to that when you work 15-hour days, you know, you just aren't as present in your personal life and so you're not attending to those things well, right? Dealing with whatever's on the horizon but bridging people in that way where they feel supported and where they don't feel, you know, like the odd duck and where they can, you know, pay to go see somebody or, or have that paid for through EAP um, to provide them with a place where there is no aversion face. And the Saskatchewan Veterinary Medical Association has also, so their regulatory body, has also recognized the importance of that. And I mean, I cannot say enough about what they have done at the Saskatchewan Veterinary Medical Association because they have also recognized that lots of people 
in the veterinary industry don't work for a university, don't have benefits. The vast majority are in private practice. And in private practice, you have to, you know, pick and choose what is provided to you and your staff. And one of the areas that was neglected was looking after mental health. And so what the SVMA, the Sask Veterinary Medical Association, has done has implemented their own EAP program, which is available to everybody. It's available to all veterinarians and all technicians, and it's available across the province. And here's the best part of this thing. This is where I could not be more proud of them for acknowledging this barrier. They never know what members used that service. There is no reporting anywhere. It's similar to an EAP program like what we have at the university here where nobody knows you've accessed it. You just go ahead and access it and your information's kept confidential. Why is that important? Well, it's important because otherwise people won't go because they feel exposed. It's the same reason why there's confidentiality, generally speaking, in the counseling profession. Because you need a space that is yours, that is safe, that is, that is sacred, that is all about you and where you don't have to be worried that somebody is going to go and share your information. Um, and, and I think veterinary medicine is a small town. And, and that's not just Saskatoon Veterinary Medical medical Community. Generally, veterinary medicine is a small town. And you see it when you go to specialist conferences and things like that. And they're like, George, class of 85, from like across the room to one another. And you're just like, where am I, right? <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, we were intern mates at, you know, Kansas State. Or, you know, we were we worked together and did rotating internships or residencies at Davis, right? There's just everybody knows everybody. This is episode 10 of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This episode's guest is Aaron Wasson, a social worker at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine and someone who is really bad at talking about herself. And I say that with all sincerity, but it's really hard to get her to talk about personal things, which is why I asked Dr. Sarah Bader to explain why Aaron is the perfect person for this important position. She has a personality that's um, it's very welcoming, it's very inviting. People want to talk to her. They want to share their stories with her. They feel comfortable um, talking to her. She's, she's always friendly. She's always upbeat. She's always positive. Um, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen her in a bad mood. Um, but I think she's perfect and for this role that this type of um, institution, so I guess the vet college as a whole, has lots of people who are doing tough stuff here and she is able to help everybody from students who are having a hard time getting through the program. Um, they're stressed with exams and the amount of content that they're learning and where they're going to end up and getting jobs and all that kind of stuff. Faculty members who are, yeah, they're new, they're stressed, they're overworked, they're underpaid, I mean, whatever. They're down in the clinic managing cases that are stressful, patients pass away. Um, so she's sort of moderating all that kind of stuff and she deals a lot with um, clients and so every time uh, an animal passes away or is euthanized they are able to talk to Aaron. I think people didn't know that they could 
talk to somebody about a grief counselor about their pet, but Aaron is just that person, right? So, I mean, if your sister died or your husband died or something like that, somebody who is a close part of your family, you would be recommended to go talk to a therapist, right? A counselor of some sort and to sort of talk about how that makes you feel and develop coping mechanisms to help you um, move on um, and sort of continue to be a, a a good functional person and so I think Erin's job in many ways she does lots of grief counseling with clients who have lost pets and for cats and dogs but people who have lost horses I mean horses will live for 35 40 years and so you could have a 50 year old woman who lost her horse but she got that horse for her fifth birthday right like she could have known that animal longer than anybody else she's ever known and so people do get very attached to their pets and I think that maybe many years ago people thought well it's just a pet like get over it right they died get over it um but that's really not the case people are very emotionally um invested in their animals and their pets and i think aaron is a great person to help people deal with those those types of losses um and she does tons of other work um around the the college which is really important but yeah i think one of the the great things she does is to help people with students and faculty that have mental health issues and her grief counseling with those patients is really, really critical. And that's been a huge um, sort of value added to to this animal hospital compared to lots of other animal hospitals in the country and even around the world. I should mention that Sarah and Aaron have been friends for many years and were actually high school friends from their Aiden Bowman days. I should also mention that Aaron's mom is a well-known counselor here in Saskatoon. So in an attempt to elicit some personal information from her, I asked Erin how her mother views the work she is doing. Oh my gosh, this is where, okay, moms are the best, but also slightly. Can you describe what you're doing right now? I'm too? covering my face with like both, <laughs> head, like head in hands, hiding my face. Okay, mom, because she's going to probably listen to this too. So. I would hope so. Oh, Lord, love a duck. Okay, so what my mother would say. You know what she would say? She would say, baby girl, I could just bust my buttons. I'm so proud of you. That's what she would say. Um, and I think my dad would say the same thing. You know, I'm very, I'm very well loved. And I feel really lucky to have these really strong people that brought me up um, that are, are proud of what I do. And that sort of sing my praises. And so remember at the beginning of the thing, of this whole, of the thing, of the whole conversation, when you were, when you said to me something about, you know, you're going to have to talk about yourself a little bit. And I was like, oh Lord, love, like I just, ugh, I can't, it's hard for me to sing my praises. So it's much easier. You did a very nice job asking that question to say like, what would your mommy say? Right. But I, I really think my mama would say, you know, baby girl, I could just bust my buttons. And for me, you know, in terms of the work that she and I both do, I feel like she casts such a big shadow. She Now, she would be covering her face as I say that because she would just cringe. But she casts such a big shadow because she is really well regarded and respected and has done really good work with people over so many years at the Saskatoon Community Clinic. And when I first started in social work generally... I remember thinking to myself, I mean, holy Moses, is that an awful lot for me to have to try to live up to? But secondarily to that, how lucky am I that she has this 
lovely reputation and way that people respect her. And I tell her this when I'm talking about clinical practice that, you know, people compliment me and I say, you know who you really should know about is my mom. Cause she's the counselor and she's like the kinder, better version of myself in terms of her counseling skills, just with tons more patience and all kinds of things in, in just the way she walks in the world. Um, but I think that she would say she's proud of me. And I know that because she tells me that she's proud of me. And so does my husband. And so does my dad. And, you know, and so does my clinical supervisor, like Doug Harder. I have to give him a shout out to just in this conversation because he really, he meets with me every two weeks and makes sure that I stay on the straight and narrow and that I've got a connection in the world that's social worky because I'm the only social worker here. And so I've got all of these people around me that are so good to me that it allows me to feel like I'm really well supported, like I've said, but like I'm not alone, even though in some ways, because I'm the only social worker in this building, I, I am alone. But yeah, my mom would say she'd bust her buds. She's probably the most Saskatchewan-y cutest thing ever. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty darn folksy. Yeah, right? Um, that we... prairie chicken, my mama. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to speak with you again because I, rem- I remember speaking with you many years ago yeah. and and I felt like it, I was just scratching the surface with something and I and I, I genuinely think that the work you do is, is so important and I feel very lucky that I was able to snag you for an hour yeah. and just learn more about the work that you do. So, well, I know. And, um, we, like, and we didn't even like talk about student support and things like that. <laughs> like we just sort of like went down these rabbit warrens. Oh, I sound like such a veterinary social worker. All my metaphors are animal related. I don't know. What is a, a rabbit? What? A rabbit warren. Like That's where, nice. like the tunnels that you might find a bunny oh. down. <laughs> really? I would have said a rabbit hole, but I yeah, rabbit well, warrens. Yeah. Just what I'm here for. But you know, like I, I, it's, I think that that's, that's the nature of this work, right, is it's so broad. It's everything from providing support to staff, students, and faculty and linking them to existing supports like EAP, doing a similar process for students at the WCVM, doing a similar process for clients in the large and small animal clinic. But then it's also being a part of those broader conversations with, you know, the ministries and other places where you're talking about you know, policy and working together and really addressing all sides of the human-animal interface, right? And focusing on the general well-being and welfare of human beings and their animals. And that's that's the scope of practice, which means that Holy Dinah, I could just... <laughs> I could have many, many more facets to this job if there was, if I was more than one human, right? So, um, so maybe that'll happen someday. But in the, in the meantime, I just feel really, really lucky to be doing work that is congruent with my social work values and congruent with who I am as a person and in a way that's really supported. My thanks to Aaron Wasson for speaking with me, for being so honest, and for being such an insightful guest. If you want to read more about Aaron, I wrote a web story for CBC Saskatoon's website, and you can read more on the podcast website at yxeunderground.com.
This has been episode 10 of YXE Underground. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Eric Anderson. I host and produce the show. If you know someone doing something really great here in Saskatoon who is flying under the radar, please let me know. You can send me an email at ericandersonyxe at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the CBC Saskatchewan and CBC Saskatoon websites. Thank you to the CBC's Kareen Larson for being the consulting producer of this podcast and to the CBC's David Hutton for all of his support as well. A big thank you to Janelle Wallace, who is my photographer for the podcast, and she has some amazing photos of Erin and her cats. And you really just have to check them out because who doesn't love cat photos on the internet? Uh, A big thank you to my cousin Andrew for doing the theme music, Uh, to the good folks at Danger Dynamite, and especially uh, a web designer named Adam. Uh, He has redesigned uh, the website, and you should definitely go check it out. And uh, Adam was able to walk me through all the steps in terms of how to update the website and stuff like that because I know nothing about websites. So to the Danger Dynamite crew and especially to Adam, thank you very much. And of course, a big thank you to the Arlington Animal Clinic uh, for having me here uh, in their uh, in their space and for taking such good care of Fred throughout the years. Uh, my, my wife and I are, are forever in your debt, so um, thank you so much to you guys. And before I go, I would like to acknowledge that this interview, uh, these interviews, were recorded on Treaty 6 territory as well as my voice and the traditional homeland of the Métis. My name is Eric Anderson. This has been episode 10 of YXE Underground. You can find more episodes on the website or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. Thank you so much for listening, Saskatoon, and we'll talk to you soon. Hi. Freddie, would you like to say hi? Would you like to say hi to everybody in Podcast World? Where's your bump? Where's your toy? Where's your toy? Where's your toy? Go get your toy. Where's your toy? Where's your toy? Where's your toy? Oh.